If you're still feeding your flock mealworms, listen up. With Grublies, you can give your chickens all of that protein for their feathers, plus 50 times more calcium for their eggs. So say goodbye to throwing handfuls of made-in-China mealworms to your chickens and say hello to happier, healthier flock with Grubly Farms Grublies, the official chicken snack of the Drink and Farm podcast. That's right, and when you switch from mealworms to Grublies, you'll start noticing a difference in the quality of the eggs, and your flock will follow you anywhere for them. So head on over to grublyfarms.com and use code FARM15 to get 15% off your first order and Grublies always ship free. Sam? Oh, hey there, Bev. What you drinking? I just opened a Blake's Hard Cider Company Rosé. Ooh. And it is a cider, I'm assuming, (laughs) (laughs) infused with strawberries and rose hips. So it's a fancy, fancy cider. And it's apparently made with five different apples. So that's fun. Yum. What did you open over there? So I opened a Dogfish Head Sea Quench Ale Session Sour. And it is made of uh, lime juice, lime peel, black limes, and sea salt. Mmm. But I thought it was appropriate for, like, what we're going to talk about today, which won't make sense to most people once we get into it until probably about, like, the end but as I was watching it, I was like, I have the perfect beer for this. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm snapping a picture of my beer right now because I just realized that the color of my beer is like super crazy bright pink. And I'm oh. hoping that that comes out in this photo because it's pretty incredible. I only have one of them, so I won't get to take like the real Instagram photo with <laughs> the oh. color of the drink in it. But I poured it out and I was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> My beer is colored like beer, unfortunately. Mm. <laughs> Too bad it's not green like the can. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty fun. And welcome to We Drink and We Farm Things. This is the farm comedy podcast that is an adult happy hour for the farming community, from hobby farmers to the large-scale real-deal farmers. We drink adult beverages, talk about the ups and downs of farming things, and give zero clucks about not having the perfect farm life. We keep it real with you and share the mistakes we've made and the new knowledge we gain, so hopefully you don't feel so alone in this farm thing. And sometimes we go off on tangents that are non-farming related, but we cut a lot of those tangents and stick them up on the Patreon. And this episode's outtakes are exclusively for our Patreon peeps. So go to patreon.com slash drinkandfarm, um, and you can find all sorts of fun things up there if you support our podcast starting at $2 a month. And it's an excellent way to give us a little something something, and we give you a little something something back. And we just updated all of our Patreon levels which is super exciting, and you should go check it out if you haven't already. Oh, yeah, for sure. And speaking of the Patreon, our drink peep this episode is Natalie Quist, which is at Cloud Lover Fiber over on the Instagram. So cheers, Natalie. Cheers. Okay, so I've got a really quick correction that I've got to share and get mm-hmm. off my chest mm-hmm. real quick. <laughs> So uh, it turns out that sometimes I have trouble articulating words. And apparently in episode 93, which is the one where we discussed troubled water, which is the bottled water episode, I mentioned that my town doesn't have running water. (laughs) But this is not a third world country. (laughs) So my town does indeed have running water. But what I was trying to say was that it didn't have city water. And then it turns out I was totally wrong about that also. We have city water. I just don't have city water because I'm outside the town, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, corporation limit or whatever they call it out here. But we don't have sewage. So that's what stalls 
commerce in my small town is the no like city sewage everybody right. does have a septic tank so okay. <laughs> I was like wrong on all accounts there and I'm correcting myself <laughs> it is all good I well when you said it I was like wait wait I've been there it's not a third world country but okay like I kind of got what you meant anyways so <laughs> I didn't really say anything at the time so it kind of made me giggle when somebody in the group was like um it's a little confused and <laughs> it just show, goes to show like how well you and I have gotten to know each other over the past couple of years because I it's like it confused me for two seconds and then I immediately like corrected it in my head and I'm like oh I know what she means mm-hmm. without verbalizing that that could be confusing so I guess I'm, I'm enabling you. well and so the term city water is actually really new to me because i've always lived like quote unquote in the city or the suburbs so there wasn't an option for water Mm. in any of the places i've lived in so this whole like well water concept is kind of new to me so i hadn't heard that term until i moved out here because everybody Mm. just had like or i guess we called it municipal water maybe in phoenix that might have been what we called it but like it was just the water bill (laughs) essentially yeah yeah no i think i think that's that makes sense like i grew up on a well so i knew nothing but that until i went to college yeah. So I I can I'm like the extreme opposite of you with water. <laughs> that's so funny. And in fact, I wanted to do some follow up on the conversation that's been happening in the group about the bottled water episode because the conversation has been so good and really opened my eyes to some of the issues people are facing with their water. Like I had no idea that there were cities that were having like excessive fluoride issues mm-hmm. or someone mentioned that their well like soured and it was recommended that they put bleach down it I I had never heard of that before (laughs) so it's been kind of neat and a good learning experience for me because you know from where I'm coming from I just you know had municipal water almost my whole life until now so I guess I was just really uninformed about some of the issues that people really have with their water and I don't think that that is unique i think it's really easy especially when you grow up either with well water or city water and you don't really have a lot of in between it's easy to think one way or the other or not think about the other way at all um i didn't really have city water until i went to college i didn't and then i had it when i lived um in the outskirts of detroit but now we're back here on a well um so i've i've had both i think (laughs) I think the well water at my parents' house tasted the best until my husband turned me into a water snob with the RO that he was able to install under our house. And (laughs) then I drank it over Christmas and I was like, so, so it's like an acquired taste, kind of like coffee, I think. Um, There's nothing wrong with my parents' well water. It just tastes different. And taste is a huge thing, I think, especially to the American palate. Um, If you don't like it, don't eat it kind of mindset. Or if you don't like it, don't drink it. Yeah, um, and culturally, in other places, they might not really case, care what it tastes like. Just that it's you know gonna wet their whistle, and they're not gonna get dehydrated. So I think <laughs> yeah. that conversation's been really good. And the not only did the document the documentary open our eyes to other issues, but it's been really neat to see that in the group too. I totally agree with that. Yeah, and I wanted to mention really quick that when I listened back to the episode, I realized that I might have sounded like I was being a little judgmental of people who drink (laughs) bottled water. And I wanted to just make it clear that I am not judgmental towards that whatsoever. Because like I mentioned, you know, like there might not be anything wrong with your city water or municipal water or well water. But if it tastes bad, like you just said, Sam, you don't want to drink it. Mm -hmm. And In fact, Jared reminded me that uh, we drank bottled water in Phoenix for a little while because our city water scratched the back of his throat. He said he felt like he was swallowing glass shards when he drank it. And we eventually got a fridge that had a filter on it. And then once the water was filtered through that, he didn't have that trouble anymore. So we were able to just drink out of the filter. But we kind of cycled through like Brita pitchers and those little things that you attach to the spigot of your water 
you know, out mm-hmm. of the sink to filter through and that did a pretty good job also. And we always used bottled water in the city for our coffee maker because there, there were so many minerals in it and it was so hard in it. It built up on the inside of the coffee makers and was like ruining them and ruining the taste of coffee. So yeah, there's all sorts of issues, you know, depending on where you live with the water. Yeah. So I wanted to mention that. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to continue the conversation on ideas for how to use less bottled water, if you really want to, I'm happy to do that in the group. But if you don't want to give up bottled water, like you don't have to, I'm definitely not judging you. <laughs> right. Just recycle. <laughs> yeah. Or reuse. I mean, you can reuse the bottles for all sorts of crazy things. Actually, and that might be another fun actually, thing to talk about too. Don't reuse them to drink water. No, yeah, no, not that. That's not what I meant. <laughs> yeah, because there have been studies coming out linked to that causing a lot of issues, especially in women and especially oh. if the bottle's been in a hot car for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. So don't do that. But yes, you can reuse them for other things. And then I wanted to point out too that I think sometimes it can be really easy to not think through things big picture um I know I'm certainly guilty of that sometimes um and I got to thinking about it when I was seeing the conversation in the Facebook group that you know you and I are both blessed that we're in a situation where we could have an RO um mm-hmm. a reverse osmosis system those are really freaking expensive and sometimes the the you know weekly or bi-weekly or monthly purchasing of the bottled water is just all you can do with your budget And it can be hard to get out of that and save money for something like an RO or some kind of iron filter or something like that. So I wanted to acknowledge that piece of it as well. So nobody else felt like they felt trapped or that they were a bad person because they just couldn't afford it. Like, I know that shit's expensive firsthand. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And we would not have one of those if my husband did not work there. (laughs) Yeah, we wouldn't have one if there wasn't already one in the house when we moved in and it was broken. And, you know, it was funny. We tasted the well water, and I actually think the well water here tastes pretty good. The cold stuff does. The hot stuff doesn't because our hot water heater needs to be replaced. So our hot water is, like, pretty stinky right now, but I'm waiting Mm -hmm. for that thing to die to replace it because I'm frugal AF. (laughs) (laughs) It'll die someday, and I'll get to change it up. But until then, yeah, I mean – the filters are insane and you know you have to maintain them like we mm-hmm. have to put in annual filter changes and sometimes we have to have a tech come out to like look at it if it's gotten clogged because that happens too depending on like how mineral heavy the water is at the time that to change certain things and like hoses and stuff so yeah no I understand I'm yeah. super privileged to have that I have a tech that lives in my house so it's <sighs> super handy <laughs> can you just come be my neighbor <laughs> As long as I get to play with the donkey and the cow, sure. Deal. (laughs) So now that we've kind of (laughs) recapped our water talk a little bit, um, we can get into the next episode of Rotten, um, which was season two, episode four, called A Sweet Deal. And it is all about sugar. Yay. Yes. God, I love sugar. I have a horrible thing to admit. I... I have a giant sweet tooth. Do you like, really? Oh, yeah. I just ate one of those like little Debbie Christmas oh, those like, are tree-shaped good. cakes. Yeah, those are good. Oh, my God. They're amazing. I think I ate the whole box. One of the kids <laughs> tried to have one. And I was like, no, that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. See, I, I am more of a salt person. Um, and I am, feel very lucky. But sometimes I do get that craving like last night. Me and my husband the past week have had, like, horrible stomach issue. It was not pretty. Mm. I The only thing I ate for, like, a whole, like, 36 hours was, like, crackers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I started feeling a little better last night, and I had some mega-stuffed Oreos, mm. and those were delicious. So sometimes I want the sweet stuff, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty lucky, and, like, I am not the average consumer after like reading through this, which makes me feel good because I have like really salty feelings towards sugar now. Yeah, I do too. And I think so like my sugar consumption is something I'm constantly trying to get a hold of. And one of the things that I've done to really curb it is I don't buy any drinks mm-hmm. whatsoever. Like the only thing that comes into our house is coffee, beer, and like the water through the RO system and I'll get the kids like juice every now and then but even now it's like a super rarity 
Yeah, that definitely helps cut back um, if you can get rid of all those sugary drinks. Um, but I thought it was really interesting. Of course, they started off this episode with their usual like fear mongering, which is just typical rotten fashion. I mean, that's on brand for them, right? Yeah. <laughs> but they pointed out that we eat 170 million tons of sugar per year. Not like me and Bev, but like, was that the world or was that the United States? I did not write that down. I think it was the United States. I think so, too. So this documentary sort of gives me the impression that they're speaking to Americans specifically. uh, Because that's how they seem to be (laughs) framed, right? Yeah. Yeah, because we like our sugar. um, And the sugar industry has an, you know, kind of a shady history. And a lot of it deals with. Um, the United States and things that we've interacted with outside in other countries. So I would agree. And I do think that is U.S. now that I'm like looking and thinking through it. But yeah, they do talk about how it's got a history of exploiting the workforce and that it actually influences how water is managed. Which are a couple of not so fun facts. Yeah. And I found that to be kind of surprising. Because I would not have thought of, like, sugar and water as having anything to do with each other. Right. Exactly. But we'll get back to that. That's kind of, like, came in at the, like, back end of the episode. So buckle up, folks. Yeah. We're going to go on (laughs) another journey. And our first location is Beta San Miguel Sugarfields in Jalisco State, Mexico, which I realized I've been calling it Jalisco this whole time in my head so i had to like write it out phonetically um good for you for recognizing that and doing that see i would have pronounced it right but since i'm from phoenix like yeah Yeah, you're you were a little closer to them (laughs) yes than i have ever been um but i what was kind of shocking to me because i had no idea i had no idea like how sugar was uh like grown or harvested or even like created so like this whole section just kind of blew my little damn mind but it turns out that the leaves of sugarcane are like razor blades so the fields are burned every year before harvest to protect the harvesters when the sugarcane is ripe only the leaves and weeds burn which looks super terrifying and not like they're doing it on purpose did you get that kind of impression when they first showed like a burning field (laughs) Yeah. So when I saw that, I just thought it was a really clever way to put, you know, like carbon or something into the soil. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just like I was looking at it and I'm like, what what is this? Why is this field on fire? And then to find out that they burn it intentionally so that they don't have to mess with the leaves and the weeds. But it also is like the perfect timing for harvesting the sugar because they harvest the sugar canes the day after they burn it. So they burn it down and then they go through and cut them down at the base and then it's ready to go to the processor. Right. And sugar cane is considered a grass. And if you take good care of the fields, they said that the sugar will grow back for seven to eight years, which is a lot. But when you think of like long term, you know, and how powerful sugar is, and how big it is like 78 years isn't really a lot but you definitely don't want to screw it up <laughs> yeah and i'm kind of curious like how they seed sugar they didn't really go into this in the in the documentary but now i have more questions about like sugar as a crop <laughs> because because they leave the roots in so the roots you know like well mm-hmm. it, it's mostly grown in in like temperate climates so they don't like overwinter per se <laughs> Because <laughs> they don't right. have to deal with that. But they stay in the ground and then they just grow back. So I'm wondering if they plant it from seed or if they like, you know, put in root cuttings or whatever. You know, now I'm I'm curious about its propagation. <laughs> so I ended up with more questions after the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> but what we did find out was that cane cutters are called coneros and they make $2.30 for every ton of cane they cut and stack. And I can't remember the exact number, but I know they cut and stack under 10 a day. I think it was like between five and eight or something like that. So they're not making a lot every day to do this really manual labor. 
Um, and it, manual cutting is actually preferred by producers despite the risks um, because the farm equipment rips the sugar up by the roots and the caneros cut at the base, preserving the field to grow back. So that's why they're not using machinery at um, Beta San Miguel sugar fields. Yeah, and it totally makes sense, too, because the farmers are actually paid $35 per ton at the mill for the sugar cane. So if you do the math on that really quick, you know, they're making just south of 33 bucks per a ton on the sugar cane, which is a pretty decent amount of money. But you also have to consider that they have to fill it up in a truck and truck it somewhere too. So it might be even less than that. Oh, that's true. Because they got to pay the drivers. They got to maintain their equipment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's all sorts of expenses that go into it. But But, it's not bad. Yeah. But it's not super great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it turns out that sugarcane makes up 80% of the world's sugar. The rest is from beets. And fun fact, the added sugar that is in my Blake's Hard Cider Rosé is beet sugar from Michigan. So there you go. Have you ever driven past a sugar beet factory? I haven't. And I had no idea what that was. Does it? (laughs) Awful. There's one in a small town. Well, it's bigger than my small town that we would drive through regularly. And it smells so bad. I mean, I feel like most industry smells bad. But this smells like fart. Like. It doesn't smell like chemically or anything like that. It just smells like fart and it just hangs in the air. That's like a bad dog fart. (laughs) You're like, am I driving by a cow factory? No, wait, just kidding. It's a beef factory. (laughs) So gross. Um, But yeah, so it takes nine tons of cane to produce one ton of raw sugar. And the juice of the cane is what actually makes the sugar. And it's the juice is mixed with crystals, and the crystals are dried to make the sugar granules. And, like, they show the factory and all the workers doing all this work to it, and it just seems so much more complex than I ever really sat down and thought about what it takes to put sugar together. It was, like, a neat little how it's made for sugar. Yeah. Which I also enjoyed, too, because... It's another one of those everyday things that I didn't put a lot of thought into mm-hmm. how we ended up with it. And then they pointed out that Mexico would love the U.S. to, or they would love to be the U.S.'s sugar daddy because Americans eat 40 pounds of sugar per person per year, more than any other country. And the U.S. has the highest price of imports. The U.S. sugar prices are 40% higher than it is in the rest of the world. Which is really interesting. And they explain that some of this is because of the U.S. sugar program that we have in effect here, which essentially has three pillars. And one of them is that it limits the amount of sugar that's able to be produced. It restricts imports. And if for some reason there is a surplus of sugar, the government buys it from the producers. So that's why we pay more for sugar. There's all of this like special stuff in place to keep it from being affected by the market essentially like they said there's no free market when it comes to sugar at least in the u.s so basically that boils down to taxpayers buying it to keep it from being a surplus um and the cost to u.s consumers for sugar is three to four billion dollars a year and this is actually why high fructose corn syrup became the sweetener of choice for beverages in the 80s because of how out of control and weird the whole sugar protection thing was. Yeah, basically high fructose corn syrup is cheaper than sugar. So they made the switch to save money. So very few people ate sugar uh, back in the day, but now sugar accounts for one calorie out of every seven the U.S. consumer consumes. Um, and the U.S. sugar factory is booming in the Florida region. Uh, and unfortunately, the sugar industry really got a kickstart during the slavery period. <laughs> and um, it's kind of odd because the average consumer ate four pounds of sugar a year in the 1700s compared to the 40 pounds we eat today. So it's kind of like a really odd timing thing. Like nobody was really demanding it. 
until they realized like what it could do for baked goods and beverages and things like that. And then it was kind of like a really weird, odd, imperfect storm with slavery for how manually demanding that labor is for sugar. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of makes sense, though, that slavery would have been the method of choice for for the sugar industry because of what we learned earlier about how, like, you don't want to take it out mechanically because it rips it out by the root. And then you don't get that seven extra years of harvest for the same crop. So because it's such a labor intensive crop, that is the preferred method. So and that's still why there are places in the world where the sugar is still taken out manually, even though it's so dangerous. And interestingly enough, the U.S. sugar industry stalled when slavery ended, and a lot of sugar production moved to Cuba. Um, So they go over this guy and his family. His name is Von Jewell. He was like the sugar baron dude from Cuba, and he fled to Florida during the Cuban Revolution in the 1950s and started a company called Florida Crystals, which is actually what you know today as Domino Sugar. And we've obviously all heard of them. Yeah, especially if you live in the Midwest. It's all the sugar in the Midwest is labeled as Domino Sugar. I hadn't heard of it until I moved to Ohio or went like grocery shopping in Ohio, but now I, I see it everywhere. I forget what the main brand of sugar is in on the West Coast, but it doesn't say Domino on it. I bet it's the same company, though, just packaged differently for the West Coast. <laughs> well, and it might be this other company because there are two major players in the United States. There's oh. U.S. Sugar Company and Florida Crystals. Okay. And together they are known as Big Sugar. Big everything. <laughs> yes. Big Pharma, Big Ag, Big Sugar. Um, But the great equalizer in the sugar industry is that harvesting is a giant pain in the ass and it's dangerous because you basically have to use a machete and you basically wear armor and chainmail if you're doing it manually, which they show and it's really kind of sad. Can you imagine wearing that in Florida? No. During the harvesting season? No, thank you. No. Florida, Mexico, Dominican Republic, no thank you. No. Mm -mm. Too hot and humid for me. Exactly. So because it's so dangerous to harvest sugar, it's best handled by what the industry calls a captive workforce. So they don't want a lot of high turnover in this industry. They want to hire people. They want to train them. They want the the sugar industry to be the only place that they work in. So basically, they're still trying to keep slaves, even though slavery has been abolished. And... So what they did was they made them contract workers. So the workers have signed a contract with the sugar company to work for them. So it's basically like agreed slavery. That's not the right word, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So they signed up for something and it's later indicated that what was promised in the contract wasn't delivered. So what it was was an H2 visa program and it brought thousands of workers from Jamaica to the fields. Um, It would actually bring about 8,000 workers per year, and they were given low pay and a few choices for better work and living conditions. So they were kind of, once you're in your contract and you're here, like, you can't really go anywhere else. Yeah. And when when your employer pays for your visa, especially in a situation like that, you're kind of bent to their will um, because they can just kind of kick you out and send you back. Uh, And the industry has a long history of litigation because of this kind of behavior with class action lawsuits filed on the workers' behalfs. Um, And the good guys actually did win some of these lawsuits, but then there were appeals and eventually Big Sugar won all of them. And then the workers also lost their jobs because it ended up just being cheaper to use machines. So now Florida mostly uses machinery for their sugar facilities i mean i guess the trouble that people caused just became too much for them (laughs) they're like screw it we'll just replant it every year rather than get the eight (laughs) years out of the seat that we bought this is easier which is kind of sad when you think of it but i mean it's a super dangerous industry to work in anyway so i don't know i don't think i'm necessarily sad that they're using machinery right 
But Dominican Republic still uses human labor. So now we go off to Central Romana Plantations, and it's pronounced Van Hools. <laughs> yep. That's the uh, family name, yes. Van Hools. The Van Hools. So they are like a common thread through this whole thing, through this whole documentary, too. Um, they have their hands in all the sugar all the sugar cookies. <laughs> God, I love sugar cookies. <laughs> <laughs> but they tell us that these workers in the Dominican Republic work in batets, um, in their tiny crude settlements within cane fields. So they're owned by the sugar companies, and the workers rarely ever leave the plantation. So there's, like, sugar cane for days around them. They're, like, eat, breathe, pray, love sugar cane. They can't escape it. It doesn't sound very good for your health. No. <laughs> Mental or physical. No. So the region is now, um, that's occupied by sugar, is, you know, rife with poverty and what they describe as primitive conditions. Um, and there are advocates that are actively fighting to improve conditions, but the sugar companies get all mad about that and allegedly told the workers not to talk to the U.S. Department of Labor or they would lose their jobs, which is just super nice. Yeah. And there are also so many stories of, like, injuries and um, workers losing their jobs when they attempted to actually try to improve the conditions themselves. Like, it's impossible to repeat all the stories. So if you want to hear them, I highly recommend that you watch the episode. Um, but there was injuries caused to these people by the herbicides and chemicals. And some of the injuries include permanent joint issues, headaches, random nosebleeds, like super fun stuff that these people are dealing with. And these workers actually aren't Dominican, but they're Haitian as quote unquote guest workers. So what happened is our sweet tooth brought them there to work the sugar fields and has basically kept them there and they've been there for multiple generations at this point so the u.s military occupied dominican republic between 1916 and 1924 and during that time sugar production doubled uh the workforce did start out with dominicans however the plantations discovered haitians were the perfect labor force you know because they didn't speak the language and they didn't have an interest in unionizing so <laughs> they couldn't speak for themselves perfect um, yeah <laughs> and what kind of felt really stupid when i saw this but i i didn't realize that haiti and the dominican republic share an island until I saw the picture and then I felt really dumb. Oh, um, yeah. Geography is not my thing. I failed that miserably <laughs> in middle school. I didn't know that either. But what's kind of interesting is that Haiti has a long history of growing sugar cane. And they're right next to the Dominican Republic. So ah. in the 1950s, this fancy dude for Haiti struck a deal with a head guy in the Dominican Republic to essentially sell 1,600 Haitians to harvest Dominican Republic sugar. And potentially Haiti earned millions of dollars with this trade deal, and they were still earning at least $3 million in the 70s. So oh, my gosh. it kind of just trickled on through. And the Haitians have been working the sugar fields in the Dominican Republic for three generations now. Yeah, that yeah, that sounds about right. That's a long time. Yeah. They're basically like indentured servants to <laughs> the sugar <laughs> industry, which is just a fancy way to say a slave. <laughs> yeah. My government, this guy that wore like a pimp suit, sold me to a different country to work the sugar field. Like yeah. it seems like a really bad movie, but it happened. In real, real life. So in 2013, the Labor Department actually completed an investigation into Dominican Republic sugar industry and found that it has been violating tons of labor laws, like child labor laws, forced labor laws, the working conditions that the workers endure. But the U.S. never issued any sanctions, which is kind of unusual if you listen to any type of like morning political news. They're constantly talking about sanctions that are mm -hmm. being issued on other countries for various things. And some of them are not anywhere like near as bad as like violating child labor right. laws. Basically, sanctions are a way to control behavior out of people by using something material 
to make them behave a certain way. So I wonder what the subtext of this really is if they wouldn't slap sanctions on them for this behavior. I think the reason why we never slap sanctions on them was because we needed the sugar from them. So like right. what physical thing were we going to do from them like do, or do to them? We weren't going to stop taking their sugar because of how huge our sweet tooth is collectively. Mm-hmm. I'm including myself in this and I'm feeling guiltier and guiltier as we talk about it more. Watching <laughs> it was one thing. Maybe this is what it'll take. <laughs> this is what it'll take to kick your, sh- your sugar tooth. <laughs> yes. Maybe I can just switch it to a honey tooth. Is that any better? No, we watched the honey episode also. Dang it. Only if you find it local. Yes. Oh, that's right. Okay. Forgot about that part. <laughs> Don't shame yourself from enjoying life completely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, good point. <laughs> So now the Dominican Republic's doing this really cute thing and they're denying workers their pension that they've paid into their whole life. Some of these people have worked in the sugar fields for like 40 years. Um, They're also denying them health insurance because the Dominican Republic stripped their citizenship and they no longer have legal documentation, which is required to collect your pension. And it's required to travel. So like they're basically stuck on this little part of this island. That they share with Haiti. <laughs> yeah. And these are Haitians. Like, yeah. and they're in the stuck in the Dominican Republic, essentially. And the sugar workers are now organizing to stop workers from harvest- harvesting sugar in reaction to this. And the sugar companies are actually claiming that they provide safe equipment, paperwork to get pensions paid and health care to all their workers. And they claim that they haven't heard any complaints at all from their workforce. Bullshit. Maybe they're all deaf. <laughs> Bullshit. It's bullshit, Bev. They're just lying, right? (laughs) Are you sure? I can sugarcoat a lot of things. I know you can, but I'm not going to let you on this one. Thank you. (laughs) All of this just sucks. Yeah. And American lawyers have actually tried to help and they filed suits on behalf of the workers, but they have no jurisdiction there. So the suits are just dropped. So these poor people are just kind of screwed. So then we go back to the United States to talk about our U.S. sugar industry. And it turns out that the sugar companies in the U.S. no longer have a large workforce. We already kind of discussed that. But they do have a large bipartisan effective lobbying arm. And this is really interesting. So the sugar market is 2% of the U.S. crop market by value. But... Sugar companies make up 30% of the campaign contributions by crop producing companies. So think about that for a second. They only own 2% of the market and spend 30% of the lobbying money. And they have 72 lobbyists in Tallahassee alone. And I'm not saying that lobbying in and of itself is inherently bad because there's a lot of lobbying for good causes that happen also. And I'm sure that not all of the sugar lobbying is in direct conflict with what's, you know, good for the country or people or anything like that. But there's a lot of lobbying. Yeah, absolutely. And this whole lobbying conversation takes us to Lake Okeechobee. Did I say that right? I think you did. Okay. (laughs) And Lake Okeechobee is this huge lake that's in the middle of Florida. And it's unique because of its size and placement and the way that it drains. Like if you've ever looked at it on a map, you're like, whoa, there's a big ass lake in the middle of Florida. And some people might not know that. Yeah, had no idea about that either. (laughs) So I knew about it because I've been to Florida, but I didn't realize how big it was until I saw it on a map like to proper scale and was like whoa this is like a giant hole in the middle of Florida (laughs) yeah and it's actually half the size of Rhode Island which is huge yeah I mean there's a whole state this is the smallest state but it's a state (laughs) yes and it drains on into the Everglades all the way down to the Florida Bay, kind of like a river, but the size it covers is like the state of Connecticut. So it drains a lot and it drains all the way down to the bay. But in the 1950s, Army Corps of Engineers drained all that and created cropland in the North Everglades because that seems like a really great idea. Um, Hundreds of thousands of acres were turned into sugar crop and they started pumping a bunch of phosphorus and fertilizer in for their crops which created a lot of runoff um into the lake 
And then that triggered a bunch of blue-green algae growth within the lake. And there's like 150 square miles of it. That's so much blue-green algae. It's, It's insane to even think about that. And this kind of made sugar the national scapegoat of corporate greed because you basically took this pristine national treasure and just shit all over it. Literally. Literally, With your fertilizer. (laughs) (laughs) It's not funny. I'm just, the way we say things is funny. (laughs) Yeah. No, I know. I'm laughing too. It's an uncomfortable laugh though. Yeah. It's a very uncomfortable laugh. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just enough to make you go stress eat some donuts. (laughs) Gosh, or another one of those damn Christmas tree cake things. (laughs) So a lot of cleanup has been attempted in Lake Okeechobee since then, and a federal lawsuit was filed during the Reagan administration that eventually caused Big Sugar to decrease the amount of phosphorus used in the sugar crop. And there was a proposed one cent tax for each pound of sugar that was sold to contribute to the cleanup of South Florida's water, but spoiler alert, that never passed. Nope. But there is this fun fact that (laughs) it said that President Clinton was mid-breaking up with Monica Lewinsky when the owner of Florida Crystals called him to talk about this tax proposal. (laughs) Yeah, which I thought was kind of funny. Like, So he's in the Oval Office breaking up with Monica Lewinsky and then this sugar dude just like has a direct line to the Oval Office, which in the documentary they said it's not totally crazy to think that they had direct access when you think about the amount of money they spend on campaign contributions right. and whatnot. So yeah. hold on, Monica. I got for jewel on phone. <laughs> and it's it's bipartisan uh, contributions that they make. It's both parties. So like yes. one party isn't any better than the other when it comes to this kind of thing. Right. But even though, you know, there was all this effort to get the penny per pound tax passed and it didn't pass, you know, cleanup has been happening. But at the expense of the taxpayer, there have been spent $2 billion in cleanup costs, all covered by taxpayers outside of this idea of the sugar tax. Gosh, it makes our 25 cents per a pound of sugar just be so much more monumental than that yeah like when you think of buying a bag of sugar at the store and you think it's really cheap you really need to like quadruple that or more when you really think about what actually goes out of your pocket to pay for that sugar Mm -hmm. so then they segue into how growing the sugar in the north everglades has been impacting the florida bay And in 2015, 15,000 acres of seagrass just died in the Florida Bay. And what happened was the construction that the Army Corps of Engineers completed to create the sugar fields cut the bay off from the freshwater runoff that was sustaining its habitat. So essentially, the water is now too high in selenium, which is salt, to actually sustain the seagrass that grows in that bay so what was once a crystal clear bay of turquoise water is now just this gross brown mud silty mess with like tufts of dead seagrass that you can just like pull out by the handful it's really quite striking and that is why sam is drinking a beer with sea salt in it yep I realized I totally could have drank a salty bitch and that would have fit too. Oh, well. (laughs) Yes. So the Captains for Clean Water is this organization that was started in response to this because they want to build reservoirs in the sugar fields to clean water and filter that water back to the bay the way that it ran through before the Army Corps of Engineers drained it all off. And there's this perfect patch of land that's about 16,000 acres that was being used by the sugar company um, that they could build these reservoirs on. And the land is actually state owned. But in a nutshell, the Florida Water Board that are very politically driven pulled the rug out from under the reservoir project and renewed the lease with the sugar company, which is Florida Crystals. So these reservoirs cannot be built. And they won't be built. I don't know how long they did the lease for, but basically that project is dead, which is just such a bummer. Yes. 
I believe you called it political fuckery. I did. I didn't want to be the one that said that word again, but fuckery <laughs> is just such a good word for all of this. <laughs> yes, it is. It it was super shady and super sad and just disappointing all around. Because as far as what they mentioned from the documentary, like they weren't actually using the land for anything useful. Like at putting the reservoirs in doesn't hurt the sugar company. Or at least that's how they kind of framed it. Yeah. So maybe there's something in the back end that I'm just like not quite understanding. Maybe they have to remove like a few acres of crop or something like that. And that's why they don't want to do it. But from the way that the documentary explained it was it like the sugar company lost nothing by putting these reservoirs in to filter the water and send it down by the bay. But they were just like, nope, I don't like it. It wasn't my idea. So I don't want you to do it. <laughs> Exactly. Okay, so it wasn't just me that thought it sounded like that. Okay. (laughs) So they kind of round things out by saying that sweetener consumption has actually dropped by 16% since 1999 when it was at its peak at 400 calories a day per person, which is like a ton. Um, Oh my gosh, yeah, it is. And that drop was not in sugar. It's been in high fructose corn syrup as you know more people have been finding out that that's not really great either so now processed food companies are switching back to using more sugar you know like now you'll see pepsi with surilicose am i saying that right sucrose thank you i'll just let you say it (laughs) you know you'll see it like with real sugar for like mountain dew and things like that now um and even though they we've kind of dropped down a little bit we actually eat seven percent more sugar today than we did 20 years ago <laughs> so we're kind of like all over the place um and they did point out that you can make a pan- an impact on sugar not with just what you buy at the store but with how you vote that's why it's important to take a look at candidates and where they're getting their funding and their money and who's backing them um, because you know whether you like it or not politicians get money from people and those people that gave them money are going to expect something in return someday. So you got to keep that in mind, even though, you know, I know Bev's the positive one here and Sam's the negative Nancy, (laughs) but if I'm, we're being real and this is a prime example of it, this whole sugar thing, you just have to be aware of what you're getting into when you vote someone into office, no matter if it's at like your local level all the way up to the president. You, you just have to be aware. Well, and I think that this is a really good spot to say that you shouldn't ignore the bottom half of your ballot when you are voting. Because I know oh, that no. it's a giant pain to look up all of those candidates on the lower half of your ballot during a presidential year and figure out like who's supporting them and what they stand for. Like the water board. How many people have uh. voted and ignored the water board por- portion because they thought it didn't matter? I but mean, it, it I does. won't lie. Sometimes before I've been like, wow, your name's cool. Oh. I'm going to vote for you. Yeah, no, I'll <laughs> totally admit. <laughs> I used to I, I used to ignore the local elections because I thought that they didn't matter. But they totally do. And, you know, I think I, I think there's a lot of people that still have that mm-hmm. conception. So it's important to know that your local elections actually affect you on a personal level more than mm-hmm. the federal elections do. Absolutely. The more you know. Yeah. I mean, what do you think of the documentary, though? I mean, I thought this was a good one. I liked that it was a little shorter. It felt a little less overwhelming, even though everybody was speaking a different language. So I had to basically yeah. read the TV again. <laughs> yeah. No, I liked it. I I wish they would have like focused a little more on the Fool guy or whatever his name was. And, like, a little more of how he tied or his company tied into things across all the different sugar companies. I think yeah. that would have been interesting. But I think that's why this one was shorter is because they didn't do that. It was, like, 50 minutes. And I think the bottled water one was a little over an hour. So, yeah. I, I, I appreciated how they, like, compacted things down with this one yeah I felt like it was a little easier to follow too we still jumped around quite a bit but I was able to make the connections a little easier with this episode than I have in some of the past episodes but some of that might be that we've been really watching them like more often so now my brain is wired to understand how they do their story arcs (laughs) so that might be it that's true (laughs) 
<sighs> but now it is time for We Can't Even Corner. So, Bev, what can't you even about this week? So, my can't even this week is from Stephanie Downey in our Facebook community. And she posted an article titled, A Man and a Goat Were Taken on a Terrifying Three-State Drive. <laughs> and you're like... What the hell? What could this possibly be about? (laughs) It is exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) It is. It is exactly what it sounds like. So police in Oklahoma say that a man was arrested on New Year's Day after he allegedly took a truck and drove it more than 100 miles with a sleeping passenger and a goat inside. So first of all, I want to applaud this man for taking his goat with him on his cross-country truck drives. That's so awesome. (laughs) But how do you sleep through that? How? That's a good question. Maybe he's just really tired. Or he was on some Ambien or something. But, like, how do you sleep through 100 miles of someone else getting into your car and driving it? Like, if the goat was, like, actually in the car, wouldn't the goat be making noise? So I actually got the impression that it was a semi-truck and they were in the sleeper cab. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. But still, wouldn't <laughs> you like feel that you're moving? You would think so, but maybe that just rocks you back to sleep, you know, kind of like maybe. being on a boat. I don't know. Some people can sleep in the car. I'm not one of those people. That's why I drive everywhere. <laughs> but what made me think it, that it's a it's a semi-truck is that it was parked outside an adult video store in Carthage, <laughs> Missouri. And I want to take one guess at what that adult video store was called. What do you think it was? It's the lion's den. No, it's gotta be. (laughs) (laughs) But who parks in front of an adult video store, even with a semi? Like, do they say, like, truckers welcome in the parking lot? (laughs) Well, usually they're off the highway by themselves because nobody wants the adult video store, like, right in their little town. Yeah, that's true. And they usually have a pretty large parking lot. And they're not super well traveled so it's going to be kind of a quiet place to sleep so i can totally see the appeal like having done a dozen or so cross-country drives i can see why you'd want to sleep in the lion's den parking lot (laughs) i thought you were gonna say after being to like a dozen lion's dens (laughs) i don't know that i've actually been inside one but i've seen multiples of them (laughs) well that's probably what it was but it does strike me a little odd Because I think some of those used to have, I don't know if they still do. I think they used to have like peep shows in them. So probably who knows what this guy was doing and he had a goat with him. Like, I don't even want to know. Anyways, continue. Yeah. I mean, and if it was in West Virginia, there was probably a Tudors attached to it. So you get biscuits (laughs) with it too. (laughs) Anyhow. uh, So authorities say that the man was eventually arrested near Tulsa, Oklahoma, after he let the passenger and the goat go and the victim called the police. (laughs) And the man is currently jailed on suspicion of kidnapping and some weapons complaints. But, wow, that was quite a journey. Yeah. What a journey. So what's your can't even this week? So mine is from NBC News, and it's about um, a llama farm. And it says at least 20 llamas are missing from California exotic animal farm after burglary. Oh. And the farm has been a recent target of animal rights activists who claims llamas, emus, ostriches, and other animals have been mistreated and not fed. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So the break-in happened early morning and at the 14-acre farm at the Riverside County town of Paris, about 70 miles southeast of downtown L.A. And they received the call at 6.36 in the morning regarding numerous llamas and emus walking on Orange Avenue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, During the investigation, it was learned that a lock on the fence had been cut, which allowed the animals to leave the property. Um, And the farm operators, deputies, and animal control officers um, corralled many of the loose 50 creatures, but it was later found that 20 to 30 llamas had been trucked away, which is super Hmm, sad. That is. So the investigation is ongoing. There are no suspects in custody. Um, And the Riverside County Department of Animal Services has been regularly visiting the site in recent days to address cleanliness and maintenance issues. And they said that they have walked the property and there is plenty of food for the animals. No animals were emaciated. 
The property is somewhat of an eyesore, but they did not find any evidence of anyone willfully neglecting or harming the animals. So my guess with all my true crime, you know, content absorption is that these animal activists in California, sorry, Beth, (sighs) um, (laughs) it's okay. They thought that these animals weren't being well treated because they weren't living like in a mansion. And so because they, they didn't have a chandelier be... in their barn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, cutting the fence and letting them run wild. So nobody's caring for them is so much better. Sometimes I have to wonder what's going through these people's heads, because like if anybody let Herc and Percy go because they <laughs> thought there was too much shit in their pasture, like they definitely die. Yeah, or get, like, hit by a car or something. Yeah, they could not live on their own. They just can't. No. And what, what they, like, trucked 20 to 30 llamas. Like, what are you going to do with 20 to 30 llamas if you're an actable animist or an animal activist? <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't even imagine what you would do with them. I mean, llamas are great guard animals, but what would you do with 20 to 30 of them? Yeah, you have a place you can just go drop them off, and if it's a rescue, don't you think that they're not gonna find them? Oh my god. And and on what planet does shoving 20 to 30 of them into a truck and bringing them somewhere be better conditions than wherever they were living, even if there wasn't a shabby chick chandelier in it? Well, I mean, maybe they'll understand how much an animal that that is that big can shit. Yeah, right. Like a small period of time when they open that trailer and they can understand why there's poop everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I mean, this is just another argument for why I think all of these like hobby farms and urban farms and agritourism places have opened up. Like, I think that's such a good thing because there is a really big disconnect between what life on a farm is really like. Mm-hmm. And what people think it's like. Yep. You know, it's, exactly. it's a little stinkier. It's a little dirty. Everything's not perfect all the time. But the person running the place is doing their best for the animals. Because if they weren't, they'd be emaciated. Because unfortunately, there are people that have a lot of animals and hoard them and do not take care of them. But usually that's pretty mm-hmm. obvious because they're starving to death or there's a lot of health issues. It's not just because there's some shit on the ground and no chandelier. Right. Off my soapbox. (laughs) So send us your can't evens. What we'll do is we'll start collecting them from the Facebook group or Messenger. Or email them to us at drinkandfarm at gmail.com. And we will collect those and read those on our next mini-sode. And now it's time for our review of the week. And if you're new here, what we do is we read our favorite Apple podcast review of the week. If you don't have an Apple product, you can download iTunes onto your laptop if you have one and leave a review that way. And what we do is we take all the reviews we read for that month and draw a name out of the hat. And that person will get an exclusive mug that is not and will never be in our merch shop. So make sure you leave us a review. And leave your Instagram handle in the review so we can find you. Yes. And this week's review is from Vishan Islandstetter Gal. And the title is Keeping It Real and Fun. And she says, lighthearted and educational, Sam and Bev really get the whole homesteading farming thing. Content is informational, relatable, and funny. Everyone with a farm or a farm dream needs this happy hour for your ears. Well, thanks. I loved that review. I'm glad somebody else thinks we're funny. Me too. (laughs) Sometimes I'm worried it's just us that thinks we're funny. But a lot of the reviews say we're funny, so it must not just be us that thinks that. Yeah. Let's hope that theme keeps on. Yes. (laughs) So just a few announcements and housekeeping items. Coop Camp 2020 has been announced and will take place just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana, June 5th through 7th. We will be there and you should be too. And if you don't know what Coop Camp is, it's basically like a chicken convention over a weekend for other chicken people. And it's super fun and you fit right in with everyone and you don't feel like a total weirdo. Because they're weirdos, too. Yeah, it's super awesome. I highly recommend it. We would love to meet you at it. So please come join us if you can. Yes. 
Be sure and hit the subscribe button and download the episode when you listen, because this helps more people like you find us. And do us a favor and share this episode over on Instagram in your stories and tra- tag at Drink and Farm. We will send you a promo code uh, for just that episode that will give you a percentage off in the shop, which is perfect timing because we just revamped our shop and we have all kinds of fun new stuff over there. So go check it out and make sure you share that episode so you can get a percentage off. Yes. And make sure you take a look at the show notes to find links to the articles that we discussed, a survey to tell us anonymously how we're doing, all of our social media goodness, and our merch shop. Yeah. So thanks, guys. We hope you enjoyed this little journey through the sugar shit show. (laughs) The sugar shit show. I might name the episode that. That's good. Yes, thanks so much for listening. We enjoy getting to learn a little more and get to have these candid conversations about things that that we looked into because we're doing this for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. So until next time, drink, farm, and and give give zero zero clocks. clocks. Bye, guys. Bye. We drink things, we farm things, we drink and farm things.